Beloved, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, that is where we are in our study. When you get there, we'll start again, of course, as a a scan of our passage in verse 1, but we'll read through to verse 15. Galatians 5, 1 through 15. Let us read God's word. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Of course, as God's word as we start this chapter... A chapter and, of course, a passage that you see there, laced throughout it, which is all about freedom. Freedom. Last week, we asked the question, what is freedom? What is freedom? And we looked at the fact that there are two very different definitions for that. And we know them both. First would be the common, the popular, the modern definition that says... We can say it simply this way, freedom is to do whatever you want to do. Without hindrance, without restraint, let it all go, freedom to do whatever I want to do. Throw the shackles off everything, that's freedom, free from any limits, period. And remember, when we started last week, we looked at the consequences of such defining freedom, the consequences in marriage, in our bodies, and the horror continues with all the different things we presented last week. That kind of freedom. That, which would be humanity's definition of freedom, we contrasted and is contrasted to, to the divine definition, God's revelation, God's word that says, freedom is not what you are free from, but who you are free to. That's how God defines it. And church, this is the consistent 
presentation in God's word. From the deliverance in Egypt where God says, you will be free, this is what he says to the Israelites, Exodus 4, you will be free to serve me. Right through to the churches in Galatia where our passage, the one in front of you, says you are called to freedom, brothers. Freedom again, noted to serve me, to serve my people. That's freedom. And as we noted last week, such a notion of freedom to serve God, to serve others, freedom with obligation, with instruction, freedom that is not about us, and that's it, that's it. Such a definition of freedom runs in direct opposition to what the world says freedom should be. And we said this last week, and it bears mentioning again, beloved, you look at the definition that we're going to look at today that we've been looking at, the world would say, what in the world are you talking about? That's not freedom. Freedom to someone? Freedom with obligation? Freedom with instruction? That's not freedom. We would say, others might say that, but beloved, listen to me, sadly, sadly at times, we noted this last week as well, it also runs contrary to what some in the church believe. Some in the church believe something very different. And we talked about this last week, the belief by some in the church that freedom is about us. After all, what we just sung is that we're free, and now we're free to us. We're free. What we can do, what we're free to do, and for sure, for sure, those espousing self-centered freedom would never say it that way. They would say, no, I would never say it that way, and they don't. No, instead, they attach a word to it, and you know this word, and we love this word, and it's called grace. They attach grace to it. They say, we are free because grace is free. And of course, church, there is truth in that, glorious truth in that, is there not? We are free because grace is free, but listen to me, effective error, effective error always contains a kernel of truth. Can I say that again? Effective error, error that works, error that leads people to destruction always has a kernel of truth in it. You mark that. That is why it is so effective. Because it has something in there that you say, that sounds good. That sounds good. But in the end, the teaching, that teaching is still a misunderstanding at best and a perversion at worst. Such thinking, however intended, has an erroneous view, and mark this, of both law and grace. It looks at them both with distortion. Such thinking with law throws the baby out with the bathwater. Such thinking looks at, look at those chapters open in front of you, Galatians 3, Galatians 4, and says this, that the law is not only done, after all, isn't that what the text says? Galatians 3, 19. It says, not only is it done, but further, I'm now against it. I'm a Christian, saved by grace, I'm free in grace, and now I'm against the law, hence the anti-law person, the antinomian. Yet as we began to see last week, and we will see more today in the weeks ahead, freedom from the law does not mean freedom from all moral obligation. And we spent a lot of time last week on this. We, we know that the world can't operate that way. Freedom does not, cannot possibly mean throw everything off without any obligation. 
Beloved, grace is indeed greater than all our sin, but that does not mean that grace is a license for sin. And this is where the antinomian, the free grace proponent in the church, misses verses like this. Let me just give you one, again, as we set the table this morning. Titus 2, verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. Just note this. Speaking of grace, this is what Titus 2 says. Listen carefully. For the grace of God has appeared. Let's talk about grace. The grace of God has appeared. Amen. Bringing salvation for all people. This is the presentation to all people, all men. Grace. Praise God. But Titus 2.11 doesn't end there. Listen to what it says. It now gives the purpose of God's grace. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That is the purpose of grace. Do you see that? That's the purpose of grace. And we would say as we turn our attention back to Galatians, that is the purpose of freedom. Because it is by grace in which we are free. And that's the point of grace. Training us, disciplining us, pointing us to the one, not to ourselves. That's why we're free. Freedom, true freedom, biblical freedom is what we are, and I would say this, Westmount, who we are free to. That's true freedom. It is freedom to renounce what is ungodly, what is worldly, and what is sinful. It is freedom to be self-controlled, to live rightly, and to choose what is right. Beloved, that is freedom. And more, this is what we saw last week and we began with, that's freedom's command. That is freedom's command. Freedom's command, that's where we started in verse 1 last week. And let's just look at that verse again. Look at it. So clear. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Here's the command of freedom. Just so clear. Christ has set us free. Christ has given us freedom. Through him, we are free. But look at it again. We talked about there is a truth, and then there's a command. Do you see that in one verse? It's not, Christ has set us free, now go do whatever you want. Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Stand firm. That is freedom with instruction. That is a command. Last week we noted how modern freedom thinking has no place for rules. We talked a lot about this. Freedom today is being tied, being tethered to absolutely nothing. Freedom today says, again, I just want to do whatever I want. Yet here, look at the text. We are given a clear command under the umbrella of freedom. And you know what? This command is actually saying it's not about that we can do as we please. Do you see that? Command says, no, it's not about us doing as we please. It is to do as God says. To do as God says. And here in Galatia, the threat was to do as man says. Remember that faction that invaded Galatia from Jerusalem, those Judaizers, those Jewish Christian missionaries? They came in and they said, what? Yes, 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 Christ. But in order to complete your salvation, you need circumcision. That was man's edict after Christ. Remember that fleshly reasoning, that movement backwards to the elementary. And we talk so much in this letter about the purpose of the law, right? That... 
like a, a schoolmaster, that pedagogos we talked about, really just disciplining us to see our sin and drive us to Jesus. That's the purpose. But it was, what did we say? An elementary thing, right? Do you remember that? It was an, the Mosaic law was an elementary thing in chronology, in theology, in so many ways. When we think about the Mosaic law, we think about the, the slavery under the law, right? But we think about what it is pointing us to, those carnal things. And beloved, when we talk about the Galatians and their attraction to go back under the law or to accept the law, like, and for the Jews to go back under the law, we talk about the fact that this is what false teaching, particularly here in Galatia, and let me submit to you today, always does. It's a regression, is it not? It's all, freedom is always a draw backwards. Remember we talked about that last week? It's always a draw to be juvenile. It's always a draw to go backwards and to go down. That's why, and look at chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Why? Why would you go back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? And beloved, if we look at freedom today, what is placarded as freedom today, and that is freedom today, a movement to the juvenile. I mean, truly, if you strip it down to its core, that's what cries of freedom are. Listen to me. Society decriminalizing what is evil and outlawing that which is good. That's regression. And it's all in the name of freedom. No, mark this. Freedom in Christ is movement forwards. It's movement upwards. And listen, it's movement not to yourself, but to Christ. That's freedom. Freedom. And here it is, Christian, you know this. It's freedom to make choices that you never could before. Is that not true? You were enslaved to choices that served yourself. We now, as we sang this morning, enthrone him in our lives, but you know what it was like to enthrone yourself in your life, and you were enslaved to that choice. Do you remember those moments when you're like, I just can't get out of this? But now you're free. And freedom is to choose something you could never choose before. Because he's enthroned in your life. Freedom to choose what is good. Freedom to choose God's will, God's way, in God's righteousness. As we remind ourselves of that, we see why it is freedom's command. Because even in our freedom, we are prone to go back. And do you see this? We need to see this, friends. This is why it's a command. We are free. We are justified in Christ. But is it not true? We are prone to regress. We've talked about the Galatian relapse at length. Hence the command here. Stand firm. Do not go back. In our flesh, we want to. And we will, if unchecked. We will. That is why freedom, true freedom, always needs instruction. If I could give one apologetic for reading your Bible every day, this would be it. Because you're prone to wander. And Lord, we need it. Every day we need to be reminded that we're prone to wander. And we need instruction. That's why I am thankful that in my freedom I have instruction. Right here. That's the first we looked at. And then we looked at verses 2 to 6. Not only freedom's command, but we looked at freedom's character. Freedom's character. Simply, what does freedom then look like? 
If we recognize the definitions are askew and we need to get back to biblical definitions, then what does freedom look like? What is the character of freedom? This is what we looked at last week. And with that question, Paul makes a couple of things clear. Look at verses 2 to 6, just by way of recap. We see first, freedom in Christ is not accepting anything other than Christ to be justified. I almost feel like I've said that 117 times in the study of Galatians, but I mean, in one sense, that's the book, and we need to hear it over and over again, do we not? Freedom in Christ is not about needing to be circumcised or any work for that matter. Freedom in Christ is not making sure you give this much, do this much, attend this much, and so on, right? It's not about pulling out the list with the boxes and just making sure I'll be right with Christ if I do this. That's not it at all. Those worldly measures, as Paul has argued, amount to nothing more than slavery. Slavery. No, the character of our freedom in Christ, and note this, it's simple, is Christ alone. That's the character of your freedom, Christ alone for justification. Two... Freedom in Christ is not hoping in anything other than Christ for glorification. So we talk about the beginning to be justified, and we talk about what's coming, glorification. Look at verse 5, again by way of recap. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We, we took time last week with this character of freedom, and it's not us. Freedom is not our works, not our righteous deeds. Thank God for that, right? Remember we talked about it. Thank God at the end of time, at the fullness of your time, it's not about how well you did the thing. Praise God, it's all Christ. No, beloved, if our hope was in that, what did we say? Then we would have no hope. If your eternal destiny rided on how well you measured up, well... That would be a hopeless situation. Because the Bible says all of our righteous deeds are pollution and bankruptcy before God. That's what God says. They're like law works, right? Feeling that we can. No, freedom's character is in the righteous deeds of the only, truly, pure, spotless, righteous one. And that makes sense, does it not? The the only one that has the merit and the divine validity to say, I am perfect. And when we, we, we sing and we pray and we live, it's in His righteousness, the perfect spotless Lamb. And that is why you can have hope. Because there is a sense, if you're just trying to get right with God, you'll never get there, ever, God says. You need Him and His Son. But that fact brought us to verse 6, in the question of deeds or works, period. Because one might say then, well, what role do works have at all then? And maybe the antinomian has a point. I mean, if we're only justified by Christ alone, then what's the point then? And and even more, if this life is temporal, what's the point? We would say, if it was left there, verse 5, maybe those against law might have a point, right? And you know, I have to say, that is what you want to ask someone with free grace. I mean, if it's all against law and flouting liberty, here's a question you can ask your free grace friend. What is the character of that? What's the character of that then, if that's how we choose to live? I mean, you likely know someone like this proclaiming grace and even proclaiming Jesus, but listen to me, their lives, their choices, 
Their words, their deeds, much of their character are virtually indistinguishable from their neighbor, their co-worker in the light. I know you know people like this. They say yes to Jesus, but their whole life tells you you would never know. You would never know. Which brings us to precisely where we left off, and it's where we'll be for the rest of this letter. It's the here and now and the in-between. Everything between justification and glorification. What does the character of freedom look like? What does freedom in Christ look like now? Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Christ. See the domain In Christ, neither circumcision nor even uncircumcision count for anything. I mean, that's quite a scope. But something does. Look at it. Something does count for something. Only faith working through love. That's the character of freedom in Christ. That is the fruit of freedom. And that's exactly where we left last week. Faith, whose fountainhead we've seen before. Remember chapter 3? Verse 14, it said, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What about, again, verse 5, just one verse that we just read before, verse 5, about the spirit by faith we hope for our righteousness. The spirit whose full expression we will see shortly when we get down to verse 16. We will see the Spirit in full measure. Yet before we get there, freedom in Christ still requires more definition for us. And this is extremely important, Westmount, not only because it is right here as we'll see today, but it is absolutely paramount because the age that you're living in right now has something very different to say. We've made that point at length. So, Let's take our next point. Freedom's command, freedom's character, and now freedom's confidence. This is the next set of verses that will tell us this dimension of freedom. Yes, confidence, another of the hallmarks of professed freedom today. You, You will not get far in the world today in a talk about freedom with also a talk about confidence. And when you hear those espousing that kind of, I can do whatever I want freedom, There is one characteristic I would submit to you that is true to all of those people, and it is this. They are very confident in what they're saying. In fact, that is the foundation of their freedom. It is confidence to be and do and all of the things of who they am or who they are. This is the confidence today that says, just give me freedom and I'll take care of the rest. What we need is liberation and I will then take care of the rest. And I mean, consider that slight tweak. Just give me the freedom and then I'm good. Leave me alone. Nowhere is this more powerfully illustrated than in Luke 15. I just want you to turn there. Put your bulletin in Galatians and I want you to turn to Luke 15. You know this young man very well. But I want you to see he exemplifies what we're talking about here when we think about confidence in freedom. It's the parable of the prodigal son. In some senses, for many of you today, you need little introduction to this parable. Jesus is telling a parable and and really getting at the father's love for his children and how it, it spans all of these different situations in life. And this has been the culmination of a few parables that he's telling. 
But it's a beautiful parable, and people are attracted and drawn to it for a number of reasons, and we don't have time to unpack this whole parable today. But what I want to draw your attention to is the beginning of the parable. Look with me in verse 11, and let's just set the tone of what's going on in this parable. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. We just pause there for a moment to say that's freedom's confidence in the world, right? You know this attitude, do you not? Father, give me what's coming to me. Uh, You know, I'm under your roof. I'm tired of this. Give me what's coming to me, and I just need to spring free. This is confident freedom in oneself. And here it is, one's plan to be sprung free. Let's continue. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Now, you would imagine, right, at this point, he's got all that he needs. He's out from under mom and dad. He's got a chunk of cash, and he's in a far-off country. I mean, answer me this. Is this not freedom today? That's what people want. Just get me away from all those rules and instruction, and I'll tell you how it's going down. We continue, and there he prospered, and then it went happily ever after. (laughs) No, no, and I say that, beloved, to prove a point. That is what freedom's confidence in the world says will happen. Give me my stuff, give me my freedom, and let me show you how this will end. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. You might say, right, what about the money he had? What about the freedom? So he went and hired himself out. I thought he was free. He goes and he hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Okay, so just a small job then, right? Maybe it would just be, you know, packing groceries or whatever it would be who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is freedom. This is freedom. This is what is demanded is freedom today. This young son stands as a profound illustration of you get what you ask for, right? And I want you to think for a moment now. Consider for a moment all the things that are his as he left his father. Now listen, in freedom today, and this is so important because it does tie to our text. You have me saying, where is this? This is the confidence of freedom today. He was his father's, right? Do you remember that? Where did he live? In his father's domain, under his father's authority, with his father's stuff. And now he wants to be set free. And he says, sever me from my father. And he's got it. He's got temporal freedom, but now it's just him, right? Consider his situation. All that he has now is just him. He went from a son under the roof to now a man out on his own. He had lots of money, sure, and think about it. Those first few days, he would have been the talk of the town. Do you know how much money that young son has? He's going to do things. But now, money that is exhausted, money with an expiration date, And living as he wants, you better believe it. I mean, think about it. Every single choice the young prodigal makes, it's his choice. It's his choice. But note it. How is that life? Verse 13, living recklessly, no limits. 
church, we would say the prodigal is a stark example of the wrong confidence, the type of confidence and freedom that is completely misplaced. And listen, lest we miss this, as you look at this beginning of this parable in this young man, this type of prodigal confidence is the reliance today. Some time ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with a young man, and in a moment of unbelievable candor, he said to me, I just want to get out from mom and dad. You know, and I, I knew this young man, and I knew his parents, and I was like, are, thinking in my heart, are you kidding me right now? He's like, I just think about their choices, and you know, they don't really know. You know, mom and dad are behind the times. Have you heard that? They don't really understand, and you know, as I'm and this young man was so open with me. And he basically told me, he's like, you know, all I need to do is just to be free from mom and dad. I, I just, he was just telling me this. He's coming out. I just need to be free. And we worked through this. We had a time together wrestling through his, really, his wrestling with the rules and instruction and the, and, and the hindrance that he would say and the limits of living at home. I, I don't need to tell you anymore. You know how that goes down. And what I applaud about this young man, and he was honest with me about this. He's like, I just want to be free. Now, there's so much more I can say about this. But listen, one thing I do need to say, this wasn't coming from someone in a disadvantaged life. This is from someone, by all appearances of this family, was doing very well. A family that knew the Lord. Beloved, we can't hide from this. Our own reasoning that says, I just want to be free from everything. Do you see how it goes down? Your children, your grandchildren just want to be free in their carnality. Because there's a sense, and this is our fall and depravity, it goes right back to the garden that says, I want to be like God, I want to be free, I want to make my own choices. Little do we know. Friends, that kind of lust for freedom, that confidence in that kind of freedom, it will never die until Christ returns or calls us home. It will never die. But mark my words, like the prodigal, it's always exposed in the end. You know, it may tarry for a bit. It may look very glamorous enough for people to be jealous of that kind of freedom. But in the end, in the end, it always dies. It always dies. Why? Because mark this, and here it is. Any freedom defined by us, to us, about us, rooted in our desires, authored by us, any freedom, let's say it even more simply, any freedom that is outside of Christ is actually not freedom at all. In fact, as Galatians tells us, it is slavery. It's slavery. Note this as we return to Galatians now, and we look at freedom's confidence. It's not about our confidence And this is precisely the point. We labor with this. We look at the prodigal son because this is precisely the point that Paul is going to make in this text in these next few verses. And he'll do so here. He's going to do it in three ways, with an admonishment, with a warning, and with a wish. Look at verse 7. He says this, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see that? You were running well. As Paul frequently does in his letters, he employs the imagery of athletics. Paul loved the imagery of athletics. He loved the race. 
And specifically, he equates the picture of a runner in a race to the Christian. In Philippians 3, it's that endurance, right? I press on for the upward call of Jesus Christ. You know that motif. What about in 1 Corinthians 9? He talks about the self-control of the runner. I beat myself into submission, right? This is the discipline. We know this of the Olympians. Four years, they discipline their bodies so that they're ready and optimal, right, to run the race. This is the motif Paul uses. But here, when you think about running in athletics, it's the threat to the race that it is in view. He will again employ that motif, but now he's going to talk about the threat, the obstacle, the hindrance. And more here, if you look at the way Paul has put together that verse in verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth, more here, the image is someone that's invading the runner's lane. I want you to think about the runner in his lane. What Paul is getting at, someone or something has invaded that lane, has encroached on the runner's space, cut in on them. That's what Paul's getting at. The obstacle encroaches, it affects the course, and here it is. It doesn't only cut into the lane, but it's now persuading the runner. You see that? And all of a sudden, the runner may say, why am I in this lane? Well, why am I on the grass? This is the imagery that he's using. Now, runners will tell you running is all about confidence. I know Jim has left us. He's one of our runners in our midst, and he'll tell you running is all about confidence. Running is all about knowing your path, knowing your track, and sticking to your lane. That's the runner's confidence. Not surprisingly, then, anything that would impede or affect the runner's course is similarly going to impede and infect and affect the runner's confidence. Right? That makes sense. If something's going to affect the track that they're running in, then their confidence will be eroded. And that is precisely what Paul is getting at here. Galatians, runners, Christians, you are being persuaded by something, cutting into your lane. You were running well at the start. You were relying on Christ as your lane, not yourself. From the starter's pistol, Christ was your confidence. He was your track. Out of the gates, the gospel was Christ alone. But now mid-race, an obstacle. Something has cut in and tripped you up. And is now not only tripping you up, it's persuading you. You see that? It's persuading you. Paul continues, look at verse 8, he says, And this persuasion, this thing that's cut in, by the way, Paul says, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. This thing which is affecting due course, that's changing your course, Paul says, it is not from him who calls you. Look at chapter 1, Galatians. Do you remember this? We open this letter, and Paul, when he came out of the gate, look at verse 6, he says, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting who? Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now the whole context of that first chapter tells us who it is that calls. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God. Look at verse 10 as we look at the bookends. For I am now seeking the approval of man or of God. His whole point in this chapter is it's God who called you. Now you're letting man persuade you. You see that? That's his point. Man, some sort of infection by man is cut into your lane. Galatians. And you need to be weary of that. This is intended to be a siren call to the Galatians who are growing confident. And this is the thing when you're persuaded with false teaching, if you're not careful, you can grow confident in that. I am always amazed at people that started well 
And then you hear from someone else that they're into this thing and listening to that, and you think to yourself, how in the world did that happen? Well, listen, they didn't check their lane. And the next thing they know, that persuasion made them think that they're in the right lane when it turns out they're on a different track completely. But this is how false teaching works. And hence, if you continue, this is where Paul gets at this reality. Look at verse 9. He says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I mean, you just want to put this all together now. The encroachment, which maybe was undetected, maybe not a small thing, all of a sudden, this little leaven is leavened the whole thing. Paul employs, now he goes to another motif, this to the world of baking. He's world of athletics, now world of baking. Great images here about a little leaven and what leaven does. Just a little leaven, or we could say yeast, right? That's how we might know it. Knead it into the dough. The, The bakers will say, you just need a little bit to knead it into the dough, and what happens? The whole thing will rise. That's what leaven does. In other words, even the smallest addition can have permeating influence. Do you see that? I mean, this is what Paul wants us to see and what God wants us to see. Just the smallest thing, because we're tempted to say what in the Christian life? Oh, it's nothing. And Paul says just a little thing can have permeating influence. Of course, Paul has argued at length And we need to say this, that this gospel compromise is actually not even a small thing. Yet his point here is that even if it was, Galatians, even if it was a small thing, note this, it's going to permeate the whole thing, the whole church, your whole life. That's his point. Sooner or later, that leaven is going to affect everything. And beloved, is that not true? That's exactly what happens with false teaching, wrong thinking. I think about uh, that same expression is in 1 Corinthians 5. You know the man that's in sexual immorality? Paul employs this same uh, phrase. And he says of the immoral man, a little leaven leavens the whole thing. And then it, it was to a Corinthians that thought, it's not a big deal. Remember, immorality was rampant in Corinth. And Paul's point was the same thing there. Listen, this is no small thing. This is not a little bit of old man that you just need to put under the rug. This thing is going to permeate Corinth, the whole church. Same here. Same here. But that reminds us, whether it's Corinth or Galatia, we still can be subject to this kind of thinking today. I mean, beloved, some of you have have been around where you've seen the trajectory of some churches. I want you to think with me for a moment. Churches that a few decades ago introduced something. And they said, this is just a small thing, but we need to do it. We just need to introduce this thing. Freedoms. We need new freedoms in the church because churches are dying and what we need is freedom. A new perspective here, a redefinition there, nothing major, right? We just need to be more relevant. We need to be more open-minded, really, to draw people in. And I ask you, where are those churches today? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. How many of those decisions were confidently made? And you know, I want to give you this picture, because I've seen some of them. They made those confident assertions about what the church needs, and you know what? The Bible was closed. No one ever consulted the Bible to say that the Word of God says this. The Bible's closed, but all of that is open. David graphically, a few weeks ago on Wednesday night, showed us the pictures of what's going on in Peterborough. Wrecking balls to churches in the name of freedom. Because they introduced just a little leaven, 
We need to be relevant. We need to be free. And soon, they would not exist anymore. A little leaven, no matter how confident you think you are, leavens the whole lump. And beloved, I don't just speak of churches. This text, I pray, penetrates your heart. What is the little leaven that you're introducing into your life right now? What's the little leaven? The show? The relationship? The look? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's funny, I pick on Jim just because now he's away and in sunny climates, but Jim always has this expression for us here. No one ever says, no one wakes up like David and says, you know what, today I'm going to introduce a little leaven so that I can ruin the rest of my life. No one ever says that. Because a little leaven, when it's introduced, seems like it's okay in the name of freedom. We're Christians, we're free. We're free to do this. And listen to me, Westman, we're going to get into all of that about what we're free to do and the choices we make because the text will take us there. All that want, all those things, little leavens, and now they've affected our lives. Just like these Judaizers introducing a little leaven. Christ for sure, but this too. Paul says, Paul says, Galatia, Westmount, that is not you. Now let's define proper confidence. Let's do that. Look at verse 10. Paul will now turn after this warning and say, you want to talk about confidence, Galatia? Let's look at this. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Confidence is all over this verse. Do you see it? And what we're going to do is do what Paul does and just follow him through this. We're going to look at first confidence fruit, and then we're going to see what the root of that confidence is. All these manifestations of confidence, and I'd submit to you biblical confidence, what do they look like? Well, here's the first one, and it's not what you would think. comes at the end. He says, the one who's troubling the Galatians will bear the penalty. That's a confidence statement by Paul, is it not? People today would say, well, he's very judging. I mean, he's very judgmental. His confidence, is Paul just arbitrarily making decisions about things? No, no, he's not. He will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, hang on to that judgment, because look at what he says. The one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. That is in the same verse as what? I have confidence in myself. I have confidence in the Lord. And the Lord, and it turns out it's not really Paul's judgment anyway, is it? He's just simply saying, in fact, if I could paraphrase Paul for you, it's not I saying anything. This is what God says. I know that little leaven seems really good right now, and all the churches are doing it. But this is what God says. This is what God says in the Lord. That's confidence. That's confidence. And it's a multifaceted confidence, so robust here. And again, a sobering indictment on our lives and our churches today. But this is confidence. Yet there's more confidence here. Let's look at the positive. Confident also in the Galatians' fate. And look at this. Is is Paul confident that they'll wisen up? Or is Paul confident that they're really good runners? No, his confidence again is where, and this is where, this is the heart of this section, in the Lord. Do you see it there in verse 10? His confidence is in the Lord. Paul's theology, beloved, is squarely in order here. It's the same doctrine of God that enabled Paul to say, think about Philippians 1.6. You talk about confidence, Paul, remember, said, I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, you want to talk about confidence. Christian, that's your confidence. What God started in you, he will see through to completion. And you know what? It's not because of your deeds. It's not because, you, you know, you're a really good Christian. No, because it's on him. Jesus Christ will grab you gently by the scruff of the neck and, and sanctify you and pull you along. That's the image because it's him, not you. That's confidence. What about this? John 10, 4, 5. When you think about straying, and people say, and I mean, uh, listen, friends, this challenges all of us. Those that we know that are straying and they've been gone for a long time. Listen, you know what John 10 says? You know what the, the shepherd says? My true sheep follow me. They know my voice. And listen, this is what Jesus says. A stranger, they will not follow. That's hard, isn't it? Because we all know people straying and I mean, they're way out there. But the text says, The chief shepherd says, those that are truly mine, they know my voice and they will follow. Look, we all have those seasons. I've had them where you're out there and you think that stuff is good. My sheep know my voice. They know me and a stranger they will not follow. Beloved, that's your confidence. And that's why you're in this every day. Because this is your confidence. This is the confident word of God. So encouraging. So encouraging, I pray. Confidence that is, listen, all in God, all his plan, all his work, all his way, that's confidence. That is freedom's confidence. Confidence above, not confidence below. And here it is, not confident in you. It's not about your confidence and your aptitude and what you can do. And can I say, as I love you all, praise God it isn't. Praise God, Westmount, it's not about us. Because we'd be in trouble. But again, we're reminded that kind of confidence is folly to so many. Look at verse 11. This kind of thinking, what we're saying this morning, people just can't, can't get this. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So much here. Simply, Paul reminds the Galatians of two things in this verse. Number one, look at it. Preaching circumcision... Or we could say preaching works, hear me, preaching works is always easier. It's always easy to preach works, always. The implication of Paul's question in verse 11 is that he is being persecuted precisely because he is not preaching works, right? He's being persecuted precisely because he is not preaching circumcision. And Westmount, it's true, it'd be easier for me, let me tell you, week to week, for me to stand up here and just every week give you a recipe of what you need to do. I mean, how easy would that be? Here's four steps this Sunday, here's five steps that Sunday, but listen to me. Think about what we're drawn to carnally. We want that, don't we? How many times do you hear, or maybe pray, just tell me what to do? That's our economy. Our economy is works. And charlatans, gurus, false teachers, they make a mint off this. Listen to me. I'm here to rip on all Christian bookstores. But 90% of Christian bookstores are filled with this stuff. Just do. Again, I've told you before. You want a good kid, you can have him by the end of the week. Just buy that book and just do these things. Beloved, we, our heart beats to this stuff. What do I need to do? Just tell me what I need to do. And friends... It makes money. I mean, can you just imagine? Can you imagine back there? This would be the stuff of conferences in the 
first century. You'd have a circumcision conference. People would be like, well, what do you do? Did you hear about this? I mean, we got to be circumcised. Yes, we got to do it. Seven steps to do this. That's, that is the way we are. And that reality brings us to the second point Paul's making here. Preaching the cross, on the other hand, right? If circumcision and works is easy, here's the contrast. Preaching the cross is folly. Preaching the cross is foolishness. Paul uses the term here, look at it, the offense of the cross. And further, he suggests that if he preached circumcision, if he compromised, look at this, if he compromised, that offense would be lifted. And church, I want to tell you something today. This is precisely what many churches do. They do not want to be offensive, right? Do you know this environment? We cannot be offensive. But listen, whether you like it or not, the gospel is extremely offensive, Look, we do all we can to not add to any of that, but we are messenger with a grossly offensive message to the world. How dare we compromise or try to water that down? The cross is an offense. You know, we see quite clearly here that offense and the cross go hand in hand. This is the thing that is so hard for so many, that offense and cross are interwoven. That very reality defined the spread of the gospel in the first century. Think about uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. There it is. The word of God tells you this is foolishness. You being here this morning and taking in this, you're going out to a world that says, you're fools. You're fools. Why are you doing that? That's the cross. I think about how he says in verse 23 of that same chapter, we preach Christ crucified. Listen, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. All that to say to mankind, to the masses, the word of the cross, the message of the cross is absolutely foolishness. It is nonsense. That book in your hand is nonsense on par with a children's fable. That's what the world would say. Yes, that is the offense of the cross. And you say, why, how, it's my everything. And it is, church. The cross is such an offense to humanity because, listen, it stands as an affront to human pride cross obliterates human achievement. Christian, you know that. If you're a genuine Christian here today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The cross says you can do nothing. You can do absolutely nothing. Mark this, Westmount. Humanity longs for a gospel in which they can feel good about themselves. Humanity, even in the church, wants a gospel that they can pat themselves on the back. That's what they want. They want a movement. They want a way to say, I'm good and I'm something. But the cross stands as a beacon and it says it obliterates that. It says it is the foolishness of God to take what is despised, you and me, and say you are children of God. And hence, Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because God took a bunch of fools? No, for it is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for everyone who believes. Beloved, I... I know we're a little out of time, but bear with me. The cross is offensive. Any attempts to try and make the cross less offensive is just simply unbiblical. The cross is offensive. And it is that offense that saved your soul. And you know it is. Because it's only at the cross where you just heaped yourself, like the tax collector in Luke 18, and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have nothing to give you. But that's the cross. 
And that's why it's so offensive to a world that wants to erect beacons of human achievement. This is as old as Genesis 11. Let's make a a tower to get up to God. Let's be God. You're going out into a world that wants to erect those monuments. Yet the cross is offensive. You want to talk about offensive Christians. Anything to try and eliminate the offense of the cross. Look at what Paul says. That's offensive. In fact, look at what he says to these Judaizers. We'll have to end here. I wish those, verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You say, what's he saying there? Well, for many of us, he's saying exactly what we think he's saying. And it's hard. This is the strongest possible what's called imprecation. You get these imprecatory psalms. You get this imprecation. Basically, you read these in the psalms where the psalmist is saying, God, bring down fire on them. That's exactly what Paul is doing. You say, well, that's not very Canadian and not very new. And... But this is what Paul is doing as the divine messenger. He's saying, you want to take the offense of the cross and make it less offensive? You want to cut a little here, if I could be crude enough to say it? And Paul is saying, well, why don't you go all the way? If that's what you want to do, go all the way. And have your hope in that. No, Christian, not us. Our power is not in that. We've been freed from that. That's slavery. And now our power is Christ. And that is as far as we're going to get today. This section is just so rich. Thanks for bearing with the text. I mean, God has so much to say, does he not? I mean, what a journey this Galatians letter is. There's so much in here. I mean, I, I struggle every week. To, to give you what the text says, and I pray you're bearing with the text. Freedom in Christ. But we're in no rush. Next week, God willing, next week, we're going to get to freedom's caution and freedom's care. That's where we're going to be next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter and just the reminders that we need. God, we are prone to wander. Lord, we are prone to a little leaven. God, forgive us for introducing a little leaven into our lives, into our churches. God, may we emasculate that leaven. May we cut it off. May we never, Lord, be prone to such things again in your strength. God, help us, Father. Help us to stay true to your word and to remain in your word, to abide in you. Because that is the only power to salvation, Lord, not our works. And it is in the one who brought that power that we pray, Jesus Christ.